Hey there, and welcome to What Happens Next with Ben and Philip. I'm Ben. And I'm Philip. And mate, today I want to talk to you about an experience I had overseas while traveling around Paris, Paris, City of Love, when visiting the art galleries. I want to ask you a question. Why do people at art galleries take freaking photographs of the artwork and what happens next? How do you stop that shit? Do you put in replica artwork or are all art galleries already replacing the originals with replicas? Are you saying why that you need to do that because the artwork gets damaged by the flash or it's just annoying that you can't view the art properly because everyone's got their cameras in your way or... All of the above. Right. So when I was there, there were people crowded around famous artworks like the self-portrait by Van Gogh, pulling out their phones, taking photographs. Clearly, any photograph they take on their phone will look shittier than any photograph you can Google search on your same phone. Yeah. And, and you're taking a photo of an image that is readily accessible. Presumably, you don't do a wide shot so someone's not taking a photo of you standing in front of it with a thousand other people. So why bother? I agree. And then you say to a say, there were security guards pretty sparsely spread around the building. And it did say no flashes were allowed on smartphones. People just don't turn off their flashes. So it comes on automatically. So there was a lot of flashes going off. 100%. And the guards didn't care. Wow. Which makes me think that most of those paintings aren't the original. They're replicas. Really? What do you think? Is that a conspiracy theory or is that something that people have been talking about for a while? I haven't heard that before. So I did Google search and I couldn't find any conspiracy theories or legitimate arguments that most famous artwork like the Mona Lisa and the Louvre, the Van Gogh portrait in Musée d'Orsay, any of the work by Monet... Or any of these famous artworks are replicas and the originals are carefully stored in some sort of, you know, underground vault. Airtight, humidity controlled. But if I ran those galleries, I would because those people are fucking idiots. Like the people who actually go to art galleries are careless, they're selfish. I'd be surprised if the original was out there. Do you think... That is an interesting concept. Yeah. Do you think if you went to, say, to MoMA in New York, the gallery in Tasmania, Mona... Mona. Do you think there... Well, actually, probably not Mona. Mona's unlikely. Yeah. But Mm. let's say, for example, a Picasso or a Monet Water Lilies in MoMA in New York. Do you think that that is original art, the original piece, or... A replica with the original safely stored elsewhere. Yeah, look, I think that they're probably the originals, but I do think that it is a better idea, particularly for some of the more valuable and heavily photographed or heavily transported pieces like, you know, the Mona Lisa or something. So, yeah, why not just put a replica on display and keep the other one under lock and key in some temperature-controlled place that... It's going to be preserved forever. And who's going to know the difference and who really cares? I mean, I don't know. I think it's a good question. I think, I, I reckon it probably goes on. I reckon every now and then they might take it off and put the replica up and do a bit of 
restorative work on it or whatever they need to do or fix something up and no one would know the difference and then see that's the perfect excuse you can actually say you've got to restore it and put up a replicate in the meantime yeah however what you do is you leave the replica up for like 90 percent of the time yeah and if some fastidious art critic comes along and and goes i accuse you i think there's a little stroke here that you've missed and then if for whatever reason they were found out you could just go well yeah everyone keeps taking photos of it so what are you gonna do like i guess you i think i guess there is a danger that you lose your reputation people will stop coming because you put fake artworks up but it is kind of weird so you've been to paris before obviously but you still chose to or were there museums that you hadn't been to before that you wanted to check out or so I revisited some art exhibitions, some art galleries I've been to before in the past. There is an element of that where you, you're basically doing it to like tick a list. You're yeah. basically going there. Yeah. But I deliberately didn't go to Louvre because I went, you know what? I'm not really interested in, in that era of artwork. And I don't need to go again to tick off my bucket list of seeing the Mona Lisa again and crowd around it with a hundred other people, many of them like tourist groups, to say I've seen the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. So we deliberately didn't go there. We went to the Musée d'Orsay because I really enjoy Impressionism and abstract art and that particular era from around 1860s to about 1920s. And so I went there to see two floors out of about six floors and that's it. So deliberately admitted four floors, didn't want to go and see any kind of like older work or sculpture, just went for mainly the Van Gogh and Monet stuff, a few other artists around that era, mm. and then left. Yeah. But that's the kind of way you got to do it. you got to go, okay, what am I here for? You get in, get out. The whole wandering aimlessly for eight hours just because you've queued up for an hour and a half to get in, it's kind of like... Well. Yeah, totally. See, this is it. In terms of the what happens next, if you're the participant or the art gallery owner, if I was the art gallery owner, I would be putting up replicas... And if not that, at least putting a very thin film of um, something perspex. like the uh, sneeze tray across the uh, Bay Marie at the All You Can Eat buffet yeah. to try and protect the artwork. Yeah. And as the participant, just going, you know what? Let's just see two floors out of ten well, rather than just try and walk through everything else like a a ticker box and leave the rest. Yeah. I think that the, the thing with the photography is what you said that people take a photo of it so they can go, yeah, I saw the Mona Lisa because if you haven't taken a photo of it on your phone. It's not so much who's going to believe you, but it's like, I think with photography so accessible these days with cameras and everything that you sort of, it's all part of documenting everything that you do and, you know. Whether you share it on Facebook or not, it's about proving to yourself and maybe to others that you were there. Yeah. Like, yeah. spotted. I was there. Proven. Yeah. Which brings me to something I find bizarre. I want your take on this. Why the fuck do old people, let's say people over 60, let's define old as over 60, mm-hmm. why do they take photographs on iPads instead of iPhones or Android phones? Why do they use tablets to take photographs? I've got no idea. I don't know why people even use iPads. I do, but I I never have one. I don't understand the point of them. But I know old people like them because it's, it's like a really intuitive computer and so it's sort of easy for them. And I know my my parents do it. So and they'll you carry just, an iPad around in their hand. And you just get the crappiest, grainiest, most out-of-focus photos. And, yeah, I don't understand it. 
I think they f- maybe because they've got arthritis and they find the dexterity of a phone too hard to handle. I don't know. I think you're right that they use iPads as dumbed down computers. Yeah. And they're bigger than iPhones, so there's a bigger screen to work around, navigate with. And they don't mind, they're not wearing tight jeans. So they don't have to worry about trying to squeeze an iPad. Yeah, they'll happily carry around a big slim fit hipster jeans. So they'll happily carry it around with them in their man bag with their umbrella and their chewing tobacco and then pull it out. But of course, iPad phones are never designed to be as good as iPhone cameras. So the quality will always be, like you say, grainy. iPad cameras aren't as good as iPhone cameras. Exactly. And with their little shaky fingers and shaky hands. Correct. It amplifies all the movements. Yeah. So, what happens next? How do we coax old people to start using- I think it's just going to be attrition. They're just going to die off. They die off or the iPads die off? Both. (laughs) Both. Phones are getting bigger. Phones are going to be the size of iPads soon. And then we'll all be be doing what the old people do. I don't know. I think you're right. I think we'll all meet in the middle. There'll be natural attrition of them dying off, phones getting bigger, phasing out tablets- and now we're all using larger phablets. I know this is kind of like one of those cliched kind of topics, but I remember having the smallest, smallest flip phone you could get, and I was, like, so happy with it. It was, like, tiny. And it was, like, who can get the smallest phone? Because who wants a massive phone to carry around? And, like, not that long ago. I mean, it's probably, I don't know, 15 years. (laughs) Not even. No, it's probably, like, 12 years ago. No, it's it's about... 10 because the iPhone came out in 2007 so it's just before then yeah yeah and then now it's just like I mean you have the big iPhone which has got a big screen well I've just got the iPhone 10 now which is actually smaller than the previous iPhone plus models but the screen's about the same size yeah, anyway, I just I just think it's weird how I used to have this tiny little flip phone. It was awesome. I mean, all you used it for was texting and calling your mates. But I mean, now they just do everything, don't they, these phones? I mean, anyway. Oh, see, I, I sound like I'm 100. You sound like you're the person using an iPad as a camera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was my old person impression. <laughs> I now have a totally unrelated thing. I was just going to say, what are apps? How does an app work? <laughs> I want a segue. Speaking of my overseas holiday, when I was overseas on my trip, it really reminded me how much the Australian car is part of our culture, like car is castle. And Mad Max, one of the greatest car films of all time, is a fantastic reflection of Australia's obsession with cars as castle, cars as penile extensions. When I was in Europe... I already knew this before, but it was a really immediate reminder where everyone's driving around and beating up tiny little hatchbacks. Yeah. The roads are narrow, parking is at a premium, and cars are purely as just practical transport. But here, bigger roads and this idea of it being about masculinity and people being obsessed with a car as a status symbol. Whereas overseas in Europe, for example... It's just a practical means to get from A to B. Yep. And I don't know how we try and change that culture in Australia because with soaring petrol prices and a desire to move towards electric cars, we don't seem to be moving that needle much to try and change that obsession with car culture. So what happens next? How do we try and 
freaking surgically remove this obsession with cars as part of the Australian identity? It's a good question, Benny. I think it's a similar problem that probably America has. I mean, you think of the, how many people in America drive ridiculously massive pickup trucks when they've never needed to put anything in the back more than a set of golf clubs or something. The most fuel inefficient, probably uncomfortable car to drive, really. I mean, driving a big truck, they're not exactly... That's a mentality, like like we have a mentality, like you were saying. And I think that in the, in the cities, it's a real mixture of people who are using car sharing services or go-gets or, you know, that sort of stuff mixed in with, you know, people buying a Vespa as a second car or a scooter, sorry, as a second car as opposed to having two proper big cars or people living on one car just yeah just because space is a premium people don't tend to drive as much for their holidays like they might have used to you know the whole sort of pack up the whole family the back of the station wagon with a trailer on the back and just drive for two days to get to a beach or something people don't tend to do as much of anymore maybe maybe because air travel is a bit cheaper and they can fly to somewhere overseas or fly somewhere else a bit cheaper so yeah and they don't have to camp they might go in a stay airbnb so yeah. accommodation's cheaper yeah. so you don't have to travel with all of your gear as much and as you say airfares are cheaper as well mm-hmm. we're probably more affluent now than we ever have been so people can afford to do airfares for the children and the parents the car sharing uber wave has made the need to buy a car less necessary the whole idea of those go get in Australia or in Sydney model where you it's like a, it's like halfway between Uber and a car rental you pick up a car in a neighboring suburb and use that car that's become pretty ubiquitous that sort of things everywhere yeah i think it'll be like the next generation i think a lot of complaints people have about culture as in racism or various forms of prejudice like gender discrimination it's always the next generation that will try and weed that out yep. and I think it's Gen Y the millennials Gen Z after that who are less obsessed with cars as a status symbol who have grown up on Uber grown up on car rental who will probably become less fixated with the car as a, a status symbol and more interested in other forms of social approval yeah over here everyone oh you know 60% of family cars were a Ford Falcon or a Holden Commodore but now they would be a, some sort of sports utility vehicle so in a way cars are getting bigger so, but they're sort of like they're not sort of big in a rev heady sort of show offy look at my big engine way they're more sort of it's a bigger car but it's safer it's easier to get in and out of with children they're more practical or you know you can see the road better or all these kind of arguments i would say that the suvs are still about the idea of a status symbol and being geographically higher on the road and feeling like you're king of the road. Definitely, yeah. And feeling like you're safer, even though all the scientific trials show that a higher car isn't necessarily a safer car. In fact, it's actually more unsafe than a lower centre of gravity. But people think that they are safer because they're higher up and they feel above the world. Mm. But what's different is they buy those SUVs as much for the 
dream of escaping the city. It's the possibility <laughs> of, funny, of camping or the possibility of going to the and, outback. And all those ads. And they are never the, will. All those ads are the same. Totally. It's all about they're all going like, off road. They're all like, look how great it is to do the shopping, picking up the kids, and then. On the you, weekend. If you want. Spray a bit of mud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really funny. They, they are all advertised like that. The difference there is that they're aspirational in relation to escaping the humdrum, escaping the office. Whereas back in the day, up until about five years ago, where Holton, now owned by GM, and Ford used to make local sedans. Mm. And as I understand, I don't think any Fords or Holdens are made locally anymore. So now no. you're not buying a car for a sense of being patriotic. You're buying a car for your own selfish dream of escaping the office on the weekend mm. to go rock climbing. I like the ads where if it's like a slightly better car, like a Range Rover or something, not that they really advertise on TV, but it would be going to your mountain lodge for the weekend. That's the Audi or the Mercedes yeah. or the Volkswagen like it's not SUV. A, it's not like you're going anywhere. You are going to your... There's a cosy fire already lit. Your friends whose house it is are already there and they welcome you as you drive up the slightly snowy driveway and, you know... Yeah. Totally. I, totally. I, mate, I, I'm there. I, I want to get one so I can go there. So, what happens next? When you're I, buying that place? I think we're depending on Generation Y, Millennials and Gen Z, who are used to living in apartments increasingly and not having a car park, using public transport, riding rental bikes, using rental cars. They're the ones that are going to change things. I think you're right. Which brings me to my other frustration, rental bikes. And it's not about rental bikes. It's about... The fucking awful attitude that Australians, or primarily Melbourneians and Sydneysiders, have towards rental bikes. So, I've been reading the media recently, and they've just launched the fourth rental bike company in Sydney. So, they've gone from none to four in about, what, half a year? Not even. And many people are vandalizing these bikes, stacking them up as a joke, throwing them in a river throwing them on top of a house, etc. Get weirdly all the coverage about these rental bikes, which I think is fantastic. The whole idea you can turn up with your phone, swipe the barcode with an app, unlock the bike, ride the bike for 45 minutes to go to an event or a pub or whatever, save on carbon emissions, get healthy, have some fun, create some endorphins, all a very positive thing. I mean, I'm a huge cyclist and a huge fan of commuting. I can't see anything negative in encouraging more people to ride their bikes. Yet all the articles and press are about the bike rental companies are to blame for the vandalism of the bikes instead of the vandals. What am I missing? Like, why is it just the fact that Sydneysiders and Melbournians think that all cyclists are cockroaches and that hatred is just transferred to rental bikes? Hmm. Tell me, what am I missing? Why do they hate bikes so much? And why are the bike companies being blamed for the vandalism against those rental bikes? Yeah, people don't like change. People don't like new things. People don't like new things that they don't understand. And they don't see a need for themselves. People are inherently very selfish, I think. And so if they go, there's this new product called Free Bikes and it's a great service that you can use and doesn't cost you any money and it's great. They go, 
I'm sick of them. They're bloody everywhere and they're an eyesore and I fall over them on the footpath. And it's like, well, okay, but if people don't leave them on the footpath and people leave them to the side of the footpath and they can jump on one and, as you say, ride it wherever they want and leave it, like, what's the big deal? The whole idea is that they're accessible. You can get them whenever you want one. And I would think that there are too many of them. I don't know why we let four companies release them within, say, a few months. Like, I walk up and down a main road leading into the city every day. I don't see anyone riding them in the mornings. Occasionally, I'll see one riding one in the afternoon, but I'll walk past 50 of them on the way to work, just sitting there. But obviously, someone's ridden one. Someone's ridden them to that point. I'd say there's probably too many of them at the moment, but maybe that's because they're all in the city and they're not out where they should be. I'm not sure. But don't you have to have a lot so people can see the flexibility and freedom of that's them. right and that's so you, go, you know what oh, there's one regularly around the corner whereas if they're as rare as taxis then you're not going to do it which is why uber is so popular because unlike taxis uber is always available i think in melbourne it could work like the new york or the london way where the city's laid out like a grid so you know that on every fifth block there's a bike storage area so, you know, if I want to get uptown to downtown or whatever, when I get down to downtown, there'll be, I know there's that bike place on so-and-so street on that corner and I can just go there and then I can walk the two blocks to where I actually want to go. Whereas Sydney is a lot more higgledy-piggledy and there's shit everywhere. And so I don't think you can really, I think it would be a lot worse if you had the bike lockup designated area and then... You know, you can't take one down to the beach like people are doing or you can't take one to Centennial Park like people are doing. Then you've got to have these big bike lock-up centres at each beach, at each park, and that becomes its own eyesore slash waste of public space, whatever. I do think what they've got at the moment is, is the best way to do it, but your question is more about the mentality of people who think that it's cool to trash these bikes. And I don't like vandalism of any kind. I don't like graffiti or littering of any kind. It really upsets me and to see a perfectly good product wasted or smashed or whatever that does upset me is it just a small-minded minority who think it's fun to do after they've had a few beers or i don't think it's any more than that i don't think it's some sort of inherent anti-bike there's not some vigilante group going around the suburbs collecting all these bikes and putting them on a truck and just throwing them in a huge stack as to make some sort of statement against them i do think it's more just huh, there's a bike there it's not chained up i'll just pick it up and trash it like people do that sort of stuff to street signs or whatever you know like i would agree with you that it's not organized but i think that in australia there's a fundamental dislike towards cycling which is the inverse of our obsession with cars. So we put cars as priority Mm. and we freaking hate cyclists disproportionately. Like there's an article that pops up about every eight weeks in the paper about how terrible cyclists are Mm. and how they break the law and how they do this and do that. Now, here's the reality is that a cyclist can ride through every red light all over Australia every day And the only people that will get killed or hurt with them, right? They can ride drunk. And who will get hurt or killed? Them, right? Yeah. But cars, people drive drunk. They drive under the influence of drugs. They go through red lights. And they will actually kill other drivers and kill pedestrians. So, just proportionally, even if you had every cyclist breaking the rules, which they don't, 
you would never have the same impact on other people, which is why it's even more bizarre because it, yeah, it's, it's not like they're a danger to people, whereas drivers who are sober, who aren't under the influence, who are just angry and have road rage, are more of a danger to all of us than a cyclist. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, but it's just an easy minority to bash for a headline or to stir up a bit of chat. And that's a bit and I that's- get, because why them? Why that minority? Because in most situations... You're chastised if you're prejudiced against a minority. Yeah. Particularly if that minority doesn't actually really influence you in any way. I just understand the hatred. To me, I can only rationalise the hatred towards cyclists as being the negative inflection of our obsession with cars as some sort of metaphorical metal dick. Like, it's threatening. It's like emasculating because it gets in the way of driving your king of the castle car it slows you down it's on the road in, in your way yeah and therefore- that, that's what i don't get it's it's oh my god i had to change lanes i'm gonna like beat my horn at you it's like well do you do it to like a slow moving truck like or like abuse the truck driver for driving a slow truck it is so stupid and i don't know what it is very strange so i was in marseille recently and there with their rental bikes, you actually have to lock them into designated spaces. Mm. But their rental bikes are different. They're like run by the government. They're kind of more industrial, heavy metal-like vehicles. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Australia, the ones we have are private companies. They're pretty industrial, but they are comparatively lighter and more consumer-like. Have you used one? So we went for a bike ride around Marseille and we picked them up from one of the designated locations and it was all app driven and whatever credit card and so on and we rode them on these tiny narrow winding roads around the coastline no one cared like you're there where there's barely enough space for a small car in the lane yet alone a bike as well no one cares if they care they don't toot their horn or aggressively overtake and give you about one millimeter of space they just accept it and we rode around paris same thing. Like, here you are in a city of, I think it's about two, three million, densely populated, conventional kind of central district with the pressures of commuting and trucks bringing food and supplies in. Everyone's riding bikes mm. and they're riding bikes in like high heels and suits. Yeah. yeah. No one looks twice. So, yeah. people riding regular bikes, people riding rental bikes and... I think it's, I mean, it's, it's very complex. And there's a whole PhD paper, I feel, in relation to the psychology of bike hatred in Australia. But you look at these people who have more reason to be annoyed with bikes because their roads are narrower. But because I think they're used to narrow roads and small cars. Yeah. And they toot their horns politely around and they kind of like... That's more just letting you know I'm about to overtake you, not, yeah, not like not get like their fuck off the road. Exactly. Yeah. And so, it's, just, it's more like a here I come or, excuse me, can you move? Opposed to fuck off, which is a difference in attitude from one driver to the next. It's not combative. It's more like running a marathon. You're kind of like jiggling and wriggling and moving around. And maybe because the car isn't a status symbol... I mean, obviously it is, but to the same degree, or it's not considered to be Freudian penis, because they're not obsessed with cars as their identity and they're more functional small vehicles, 
that would explain perhaps why they're just kind of more carefree about cyclists. Yep. I'd agree with all of that. I think you need to do the PhD thesis on the mentality. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're a long way in Australia from anyone being accepting of cyclists. And it's a shame because, look, you know what? Maybe with Uber, maybe with go get rental cars, maybe with more people living in apartments and catching public transport because they don't have car parks and because they can't afford cars and parking is too expensive maybe there'll be a slow embrace of the rental bike i just hope that the rental bike companies can hang in there enough for the culture to catch up and try and embrace that way of transport is there anything stopping you taking one of those bikes into your house and locking it up leaving it there and then you can use it whenever you want I don't know. I'm not sure. I think or do they have to be left out in public areas? And I'm a cyclist. They've got some GPS on them that tells you when they're not. Yeah, I'm a cyclist. I have my own bikes. I don't know. But I have been informed that you've got to like leave them in a certain area, which would suggest it's got to be left somewhere accessible for someone else, someone else. Yeah. I think they've all got GPS on them or something. Yeah. Which brings me to this. Why are people anti-rental bikes and anti-cyclists in general which don't cause them any problems because they ride on the road. They're not like riding people off footpaths most of the time. Mm. Yeah, it's totally cool to take your dog around, not clean up the shit. And if you do clean up the shit, you dump their shit in someone else's rubbish bin, garbage bin, instead of your own, instead of a council government bin. That's what I don't get. Like, what's with people who think, you know what? I'm going to leave this dog shit in 30 degree temperatures in someone else's rubbish bin which they've got to then pull into their backyard and have a barbecue with you know a meter of and that's totally cool that to me really grinds my gears yeah and presumably you're walking your dog in a neighborhood that you know being your local area you know what day bin day is in your local area so you know if you put that bag in a bin on a monday morning you know that bin only got emptied on sunday night that's why there's so many bins on the street so you know that bag of dog shit's going to sit in there for the next seven days and by the end of it, it's going to be pretty feral Am I missing anything or is that just absolute selfishness? That's, yeah, it's antisocial. Because they know what they're doing, right? It's, it's hugely antisocial. Totally. If you can walk your dog for half an hour, you can walk your dog carrying a bag of its shit for half an hour until, or, until you find a proper bin to put it if in. If you walk your dog for half an hour in Sydney, in the suburbs, you will find a public bin within about five minutes. Yeah, you know, you know where the public bins are in your local area. Totally. And yeah. you know what? If you can't, you take that dog shit home with you to your bin because no yeah. one else should have to tolerate... I don't walk around with, with my kid's nappy and dump it in someone else's fucking bin. Like, that's just selfish. Like, what? Yeah. Like, no, I agree. I agree. As a dog owner, it is poor form, and I'll pull people up on it when I see them do it. As a parent, I would never put nappy in. So, I hear you. You hear me. You know what I do sometimes is I just, to save water at our house, we actually bag our shit. And sometimes we just put bags of our own shit in other people's bins. Uh, we don't waste a bag. We actually go into a squat <laughs> over the top of the over bin. Over the top of the bin yeah. and give a good spray. You get a good, you get a good leg workout at the same yeah. time. Yeah. The trick is to try and find four bins in a row 
at around 5am after the garbage man has come past. So all four of us can do a simultaneous <laughs> family dump. Family dump. So obviously you have to tailor the dinner cooking for the night before to get the maximum benefit. Totally, totally. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I walk around going, fucking dog owners. And you probably walk around going, fucking precious parents. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> everyone has their own their complaint, their whinge, which is convenient to them. I walk my dog every morning and I know that if he hasn't done one by this point of the walk, then I'm in trouble because he's going to do one right outside our house. And that means I'm either going to have to double back to where the public bin is or put his shit in our bin. And then I've got to sum it up to how long till bin day. And So how do you coax your dog Teddy to just relax the sphincter of the bowel and just let that the right boy time. out? Well, I just have to... Do you like tickle his tummy? Uh, no, I leave him alone, but I have to stage the route such that the walk takes place in a certain way so that he will do his business in the vicinity of a public bin. So oh, okay. that works out quite well. Okay. But yeah, for whatever reason, if he doesn't double back to the public bin or suck it up and put it inside, I don't put him in other people's bins. So do you put his poo in your bin at home? I will if it's, say, yeah, like I'll, do, I'll like, do the maths and how long it is till bin day. But in summertime, would you be less likely to put it in? My bin, My bin's not too bad. It is in the shade. Okay. So you're not going to get like a kind of like a hot soup happening in there. Yeah, no, I have had that before. A fecal it's, it's not casserole. No. Not good. Okay. All right, mate. I think, I think we'll call out a day. What happens next is time for me to go and get some more beers. I hear you. I read you. Peace out. <laughs> See you, mate.